But before we begin this morning, um, like I said er earlier, that we are pausing for a moment for a few weeks now uh, from our minor prophets once more, and uh, we're going to study uh, the Christmas story. Uh, Christmas, obviously, is right around the corner. If you're a parent and you're unaware of that, uh, <laughs> you might want to get on the ball. Um, but we're going to look. I just think it's it's worth more than just a Christmas Eve service to, to really take a look at uh, the story of Christmas, because it is such a huge part of why we are here between Christmas and Easter, uh, those two stories culminating together, it was why we are a church today. And so it just, I think even three weeks was not enough justice, but uh, that's what we're going to have as we study it beginning this morning. Um, when I was a child, I just, I remember especially as a child, I still do, but I, I loved Christmas in the, the season, uh, the times with friends and family. Um, you know, the two weeks off from school is always great. Um, <laughs> you know, the ugly Christmas sweaters, uh, the Christmas trees, um, the excitement and the wonder of Christmas morning as a child. Um, but perhaps what I loved most uh, about all of it was the lights. Um, I just love the lights on, on houses and all around the uh, neighborhoods and in the, in the downtown area. Um, you might not know, as I grew up in San Diego and Tampa, so uh, a little different than here, a little less snow. Um, I came to quickly find out that your lights freeze to your roof up here. Um, <laughs> I said, well, how am I going to get these down? Uh, I just have to wait till May, you know. Um, it's a little different up here, but uh, I just remember in San Diego, I lived in a, in a neighborhood where a lot of people decorated their houses without the worry of <laughs> snow and sleet and, you know, ice and everything else tearing it up and uh, as a kid I just remember just being in wonder and awe of, uh, of all these of all these houses and I remember one in particular uh, the guy just went full Clark Griswold on his house I mean it was just insane you could see it was like a beacon you know he was lived, lived down the hill and you could just see this light shooting up and uh, I can't imagine what his electric bill was but uh, you go down there and he had lights that were running up and down his, his uh, roof uh, they were running along the sides of his driveway he had them on all his trees and he had them on his basketball hoop even and I remember thinking as a kid that's dumb you can't even play basketball now um, but that's where my mind was as a kid I was always thinking about basketball so I was like well that's just a waste um, but everything else was just I was just blown away by this house and I used to always ask my parents when we were coming home if it was at night if we could go that way uh, so I could see that house and uh you know, this week as we uh, focus on the Christmas story, there's, um, there's, there's just something magnetic and, and beautiful about those lights that are shining in the darkness. And, uh, you know, the, the reason that we celebrate the Christmas story as Christians is, the, you know, the Son of God, right? The light of the world, as he is called. And uh, he came to this earth in the form of man, being born of the Virgin Mary, it tells us. Um, and it's just a wonder to behold. And so, while those lights were beautiful and amazing, they just told nothing in comparison to the true light of the world, uh, as we're going to study and see this morning. And so, we're going to look at the Christmas story, at the story of Jesus, um, through a little different lens. Typically, you read through the Gospel of Luke as you're going through the Christmas story, but we're going to look uh, at the first chapter of John, actually, in the next few weeks. And so, if you have your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to turn there, and we're going to focus in on uh, verses 1 through 5, primarily this morning of chapter 1 of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. Um, 
Let's pray before we get into God's word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask that you would, again, just reveal yourself to us through your word, that we would, um, that our, just our hearts would be made anew um, with wonder and excitement and joy for you, Lord. And we just thank you again for the story of Christmas, that you came down, you left your throne in heaven in the, to come in the form of man and enter this earth and live among us and dwell among us and serve the people, Lord, and ultimately sacrifice yourself for your people. And we just thank you so much, Father, for a grace that we do not deserve, nor can we ever earn on our own accord. And Lord, I just uh, ask for those, if there's anybody here that just does not know you personally, Lord, has not placed their faith in you, that uh, through today and the coming weeks and the story of Christmas, that your heart would just be revealed to them and that you would just reveal yourself to them in a brand new way and draw them ever closer to your heart. In your name we pray. Amen. So beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if you jump down to verse 14 real quick. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The introduction of Jesus in John chapter 1 is one of the most vibrant and beautifully written sections in all of Scripture. At least that's my opinion. Uh, it's, one of, it's my favorite introduction out of all the Gospels uh, because it is just incredibly beautiful and it shows Jesus uh, as, uh, as God, as deity. There's four Gospels in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the first three are known as the Synoptic Gospels, which essentially, in layman's terms, means similar. Uh, there's very similar themes throughout uh, the storyline, the, the, the direction of it. They all are very similar. Um, but John's Gospel is written a little bit differently. It does not begin, as we see here, as Matthew's does with the lineage of Jesus, um, nor does it begin with Jesus' baptism like we see in the book of Mark. And it also differs greatly from Luke, who begins with the promised birth of John the Baptist and the angelic message uh, to Mary, and ultimately the nativity scene. So Matthew, when we come to understand the Gospels, uh, he presents Jesus to the readers as the son of David, the heir of the throne of Israel, and the king of the Jews. He writes primarily uh, to the Jewish readers of his day. Mark was written with the Roman in mind. Mark's gospel is very concise and very to the point. He uses the word immediately 14 times in 16 chapters. And Mark presents Jesus as the servant. Luke, which is the longest of the gospel uh, records, writes with the Greek in mind, and he considers the humanity of Jesus and refers oftentimes to Jesus as the Son of Man. But when you come to John's gospel, he does not write to any particular audience in mind. In fact, he writes to the Jew and to the Gentile, and he's writing to the entire world with his message. And so that's why John's gospel is referred to as the universal gospel. And John presents Jesus as his deity, and in fact, John begins his message of Jesus well before any of these moments in the other Gospels take place. He starts at the very beginning. And when I say that, I mean more than just the very beginning uh, 
of creation itself. He, he begins his message before the dawn of creation. Uh, as far back as we can imagine and even farther still, you know, in an infinite time before us. And so the Synoptic Gospels, they tended to focus on the events surrounding the life of Jesus, where John would oftentimes give us the meaning behind the event itself. Uh, for example, in all four Gospels, you have the feeding of the 5,000 that is on record. Um, but it was, in a, it should be, it's a very significant miracle, but only John's uh, and his account tells of Jesus' sermon right after the feeding of the 5,000, where he speaks to the crowd and calls himself the bread of life that has come down from heaven. But again, it's important to remember as we go through the book of John, or at least chapter 1 in the next coming weeks, is that John presents Jesus in his deity as God. Now someone once said that the things that are unique to John's gospel are amongst the most precious possessions of the church. The stories are so simple that even a child will love them, but the statements are so profound that no philosopher can fathom them. And I believe this is because the deity of Jesus is the focal point of John's gospel. There's only a limit that we can actually grasp and understand in our finite minds of the God of the universe. And in fact, if you look later in the book of John, he gives the very purpose of his writing in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, you, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there you have it. Um, this, he says, is this, this account is written that we may believe in Jesus and that he is Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is in fact the Son of God, and that his deity, and that we would be, and that, that we would find everlasting life in believing this incredible truth this morning. So let's break this down. Again, verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John's gospel is the only gospel, again, that begins with the story of Jesus Christ, not as he appears on earth, but as he existed before time. Jesus calls him by the name Logos, or the intelligence of God, who, who gave birth to everything that exists and who also became the Word incarnate, explaining that this intelligence which is undiscoverable except through his Word and works. And if you recall back to Genesis 1, chapter 1, the very first book in the Bible, the very first verse in the Bible, it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So this is where we see the beginning of humanity, the beginning of creation as we understand and know it today. But in John, chapter 1, verse 1, it goes even beyond this beginning itself. Before man ever existed. It says before God spoke the world into, the, into existence, before anything was ever created. It's in that beginning, which is really not a beginning because it's infinite, but it's the word John uses so that we can comprehend it. Um, but it's at this point that Jesus was, and he was the word, it tells us. The title that John uses, I love this title, the word, is a reference to Jesus. If you did not know that, it's important to understand that as we move forward. And in the Greek, it was the word, as we said before, logos, which the Greeks believed to be the power that set the world in motion, right? The thinker behind the thought, the creator behind the created. And while the Greeks were pantheistic, they didn't believe in just the, the one true God of Israel, they believed in the logos, but John essentially is saying to the Greeks here, if you want to know the thinker behind the thought and the creator behind the creation, it's Jesus Christ. He is the Logos. He is the Word. Now to the Jews, when they considered the phrase the Word, to them that was synonymous to God himself. 
They understood that to be God himself. So therefore, when John opens his gospel with Jesus being the word, it is clear to both the Greeks and the Jews alike that he means that Jesus is in fact God. So he doesn't hold back any punches here. Right off the bat, he is telling you who is God, and this is who the story is about in his book. Now it's vital that we understand that the truth to the deity of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable, essential doctrine to the Christian faith. Anybody that denies that Jesus is God does not know Jesus and is not saved. Period. If Jesus is not God, then we have no Savior. And without a Savior, it tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 1, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And so before we go any further, these next coming weeks, it needs to be made clear that John firmly states that Jesus is God. Okay? So if you do not believe that this morning, we're going to be in discussion as to why Jesus is God and the evidence that is presented to us. So number one, we see that Jesus is God because Jesus is eternal. Again, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, being Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, there's, so we have to understand that Jesus is eternal. There is no time or point in existence that he did not exist himself. He was not created. He has always been and always will be. And Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Colossians, in Colossians 1.17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. During his earthly ministry, Jesus never denied his eternal existence before the world began. In fact, he only reaffirms it. Uh, do you remember when Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders and they questioned him about his identity? And it says that Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. No, off the top of our head, that looks like just really poor English, right? But it's not. What Jesus did here is when he said this is that he took the title that God himself used when he revealed himself to Moses. So we're going to jump back to uh, the Old Testament when Moses is at the burning bush um, and he asks God what he should tell the Israelites. He's been told by God to go to the, and save his people out of the land of Egypt and he goes, well, if they ask who sent me, who should I tell them? And we see that God responds. It says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus took the title of God himself and claimed to be the one that always existed. Therefore, Jesus never denied being God. On the contrary, he continually and often reaffirmed it. The Logos, or the Word, uh, as he is called, Jesus was there in eternity past. And John says that he was with God and the Word was God. Interesting statement. How can he be with God and yet be God? How can there, you know, so, so a former pastor of mine, he explains it this way. He says, although Jesus is God in his person, he is separate and distinct from the Father, and yet they are one. The Trinity of the Godhead is a mystery that only heaven will fully reveal. We are scratching the surface with our finite minds as it relates to the Trinity. So we'll never fully grasp it while we're here on earth. Our finite minds cannot comprehend the fact that God is three, and yet he is one. Um, but he is Jesus, he is separate from the Father, yet he is God himself. And we can certainly do our best with imagery and illustrations to explain the Trinity, but I believe that all of those explanations fall very short of the full truth behind it. But it's clear that the Bible teaches they are three, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and yet they are one. So Jesus was with God, and yet he is God. 
But also when it says here that he was with God, it's a beautiful word that literally means face-to-face with God. In fact, in the Greek language, it identifies as the most intimate relationship of communication and communion and fellowship. So in other words, it's telling us that in eternity past, Jesus and the Father were face-to-face. And Jesus was there with intimate communion in eternity past. And this is why I believe that Jesus prayed in John 17.5. He said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Jesus is saying that that fellowship that we had before creation of the world, that communion, that intimacy, glorify me with that glory. Right? So Jesus' deity is reaffirmed over and over again throughout Scripture as well. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1, chapter 3, says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus says in John 14, 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God because he's eternal, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, as it tells us in Revelation 22. Jesus is also God because he is creator of all things. In verse 3 of John chapter 1, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made, anything made that was made. I believe this is relatively easy to understand. It's a clear statement that that clearly identifies the creative power of Jesus Christ. It says nothing was made without him. He created it all. Because Jesus existed before the foundations of the earth, he was there when the world was set in motion. The word spoke the world into existence. I think about that. That's just incredible, isn't it? We see the very beginning of time as creation is brought forth. It's brought forth by the word itself. He spoke and it happened. The writer of Hebrews says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Very clear statement once more that Jesus created everything. Now turn for a moment to the book of Colossians. Uh, Keep your thumb where you're at on John. Uh, Just real quick, we're going to do some what's called cross-referencing in Colossians 1, verses uh, 15 through 17. And here we see Paul is writing concerning Jesus, talking about the preeminence of Christ, and he does so uh, beginning in verse uh, 15. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Once more, scripture is very clear that Jesus created all things. It even tells us visible, invisible, heaven, earth, all of it. The word, Jesus Christ, spoke it into existence. But not only did he create it all, but Colossians also tells us that through him, all things hold together. What an incredible statement to think about this morning. The world at this present moment is held together by Jesus, right? Now, we, we understand, you know, I don't understand it very well, but science has proven all, all these different forces and gravity and um, how, how certain things work to, an, to a point, right? But all of that is held together by Jesus. 
And that is so encouraging for us this morning because if he can hold the world together, the entire universe together, which we have not even gotten close to to seeing the entirety of it, and we never will, I believe, then he can definitely hold our lives together if we let him. But everything he has created, he's also done done so for a purpose. That means that you were created with a purpose, right? You're no mere cosmic accident, which science may tell you. You were created with a purpose. You've been created for fellowship and relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus is God because he is the creator. And that's why in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, John hears the heavenly song concerning Jesus and the words of the people when they say this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Once more proving that everything that's been created has a purpose and it's the will of God that they were created and exist. This is a song of praise to Jesus here in Revelation. Also during his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrated his power over creation on several occasions. In Mark's Gospel, you may recall the story when Jesus and his disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and a huge storm hits them and uh, naturally, uh, in an open boat, <laughs> the disciples are kind of panicking and freaking out. They're in the middle of, and if you've ever seen the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's pretty big. It's just not a sea, it's a lake, but it's big enough to where you can't see the other end. Uh, so I imagine being in the middle of that and while the waves are tossing and turning all around you uh, would be pretty scary. Uh, and so they're fearing for their lives. They, they wake Jesus up. And it tells us that as he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And then a few couple verses after that in Mark 4, uh, 4 verse 41, it shows us the disciples' response. It says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who can it be? Well, it's only the creator of the wind and the sea that they obey him. There's also the story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And he's riding upon a donkey in the crowd, was waving palm branches and shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the, uh, some of the Pharisees say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answers him in verse 40, I tell you, if, the, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Could you imagine Jesus like, alright guys, calm down. And all of a sudden you just hear this from the, from the rocks you know, around him in the creation. Yeah, that probably would have freaked him out a little bit. But how amazing that even the rocks cry out his glory. Jesus is eternal. We see that Jesus is creator. He created all things and, all, and through him all things hold together. But also Jesus is God because only in Jesus do we have eternal life. Looking at verses 4 and 5, it says, In him was life. Back in John, I'm sorry, back in John chapter 1, if you haven't turned back there. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you read through the book of John, you'll come quickly to understand that the word life is a major theme in his gospel. In fact, he uses the word some 36 times. And the word John uses for life is not the Greek word bios, where we get our English word biology. It's not that kind of life. Uh, Rather, he uses the Greek word zoe, which refers to the soul and to spiritual life. 
The Bible tells us that before we come to know Christ, even though we are physically breathing and living, that we are in fact spiritually dead, and that apart from Christ there is no life. 1 John 5 verse 12 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. A very clear one or the other statement, right? There's no middle ground there. You either have life or you do not by having the Son or choosing not to have Him. It was the Pharisees of all people during Jesus' ministry that were spiritually dead. Right? They had all the knowledge of the Scriptures. These, these men invested their entire lives from, from young childhood up to adulthood studying the Old Testament law and prophets. Most of them, I believe most of them or all of them, had the entirety of Scripture memorized. Uh, and they, they knew it inside and out. They understood the law inside. Well, they knew the law inside and out. They didn't necessarily understand it. Um, but really sad that they grew up studying this so deeply. But they believed that they obtained salvation through their works and through the obedience of the law rather than understanding that by reading the law, it should help us realize that we have no hope apart from Jesus. We cannot obey the law in its entirety on our own accord. But in 539, in John 539, it says, You search the scriptures, this is Jesus speaking to the uh, Pharisees, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Pretty clear statement. He's saying, guys, you've studied the scriptures your entire life, and yet you believe that you can find your salvation within the law itself. But in fact, what you've been studying has been pointing to me in its entirety, and always has and always will. It bears witness about me. And there's people like this today. They may go to church consistently, right? They have a pretty good grasp of scripture and a good, good grasp of Jesus or his ministry. But all that head knowledge has not penetrated their hearts and they haven't placed their faith in Jesus. And because of that, Scripture tells us that they are spiritually dead. In Him is life. And we don't just have John's personal perspective of this. Jesus once more Himself confirmed this on multiple occasions. In John 10 verse 10, He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 14.6, Jesus said to Him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And each time in its recording, it uses the Greek word zoe and not bios. He is speaking of a, a spiritual life. He's not talking of a physical life. He's speaking spiritually. And that's why he says in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So even though we all will inevitably experience a physical death, it is in Christ that we find eternal life. And so John makes it very clear in his gospel that you don't know real life until you know Jesus Christ. Now not only is Jesus the life, but as John says here, Jesus is also the light. Right? He says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus in his life and during his ministry was a light into a dark world. The Bible tells us that God is in fact light. First John 1 through 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you recall back to the story once more of creation, we're going back to creation again. There's the, the first phrase we hear from God is let there be light, right? And it tells us that there was light. Um, but the sun and the moon and the stars were not yet created. So where does this light come from? Right? I think we tend to think, at least I'd always tended to think that he said, let there be light, it was boom, there was the sun. But then it tells us, you know, a little bit later that the sun was created. So where did this light come from? 
And I think it's very clear as you look throughout all of Scripture and the identity of God and the identity of Jesus that, in fact, it was God himself. It was Jesus himself who was the light. And they said, let there be light. We also know that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are called children of light in 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. Jesus also said of himself in John 8.12, I know we have a lot of scripture today, guys. Um, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Zoe, there is that word once more. However, even though Jesus was the light of life, not everyone comprehended it. Not everyone to this day comprehends it. Many resist it. They're unwilling to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. And I think it's very clear that to live in sin is to live in darkness. To hide from the Lord, to cover your sin, is in fact to live in darkness. We see again at the beginning of creation, the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, where the very first response of their sin is they hid from God. They attempted to hide themselves in their sin that it would not be revealed in the light. But the wonderful thing, though, is that we need not fear our sin being revealed. Because in Christ, we now have life, it tells us, and we have it abundantly. He has given us hope in the midst of our sin. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son or a daughter of light. You are no longer bound to sin and darkness. And you've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. And you can now walk confidently in freedom and life. That's a wonderful truth for all of us this morning. If, if you've known that, and maybe you've forgotten, it's a wonderful reminder. If you've never heard that, what a great thing to hear, right? That there is hope. We can walk confidently in freedom in life if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We're no longer bound to the things of this world. We're no longer bound to sin and darkness. And yet we can walk in light regardless of our sin because it has been forgiven. Past sin, present sin, future sin has been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I love that name, the Word, the life, the light. The Christmas story, the older I get and the more I um, think of it, the more I allow the, the story itself to I meditate on that story. It is so, so incredible to think that this Jesus, right? This creator, this light, this life, the word himself who existed before time. That he humbled himself in the form of man. And he was born of the Virgin Mary and set in motion a plan that was in place before the dawn of existence. That's pretty incredible to think about, right? This wasn't just a, something God thought up, with, oh, you know, I've got to save these people. They messed up. Let's, let's see what we can do. No, this was a plan that was in place before the dawn of creation. It was a plan to rescue us, the very people who turned our backs from God, to rescue us from our own sin and our own shame. And it's a rescue mission that we did not deserve, but Jesus willingly accepted and lovingly accepted and as we continue through the first chapter of John in the coming weeks, we're going to study what John reveals about Jesus. He's going to reveal his sovereignty, Jesus' rejection, his incarnation, his miraculous and infinite and unfathomable grace. Now this season, the Christmas season, is always a very busy time in our culture, isn't it? You know, it kind of sneaks up on us, and we're always running around. Um, we're making plans, visiting family. Now, all of these things are, are wonderful things. Um, it's not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, but it's very easy to lose sight 
of the wonder of Jesus Christ if we're not careful, right? And so we kind of make this holiday, and if we're not careful, we kind of focus it around the identity of family, um, and not Christ or anything like that, but just our, our physical family, um, or presence, or, or just, uh, just a time together, the gift of that. And again, those aren't bad things, but it's also important that we do not lose sight of the wonder of Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you guys during this season to take time with your families to remember the birth of Jesus. You know, talk about it. You know, discuss it. Remember why he came. Remember how he came. And remember who he came for. And again, referring back to the beginning, I, I, I love Christmas lights. There's something about them I find beautiful and wonderful. But again, there's no comparison to the true light of the world. I mean, the greatest, the greatest light display does not hold a candle to the true light of the world. There's no, there's no comparison. His beauty is unmatched. His wonder is beyond comprehension. His love is as vast as a bottomless ocean. And there's no words in all the languages of man that can come close to describing our King, Jesus Christ. He is wonderfully, he is awesomely, terrifyingly, beautifully indescribable. And he is the light that shines in the darkness. And I love that second part. The darkness cannot overcome it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful for you this morning. And we just are so thankful that you are the light of the world and the darkness cannot and will not and will never comprehend it, will not overcome it. Lord, it is in you that we find hope this morning. And again, I just pray if there's someone who does not know you, Lord, they've not placed their faith in you, I just pray that they would see the truth this morning, God. And I just thank you once more for your humility and your great and vast love for us. The very people that have turned our backs on you and you came in our place and died on the cross for our sins. Humbled yourself in the form of man, leaving your throne in heaven to do so. And God, I just pray as we move forward and get closer to Christmas, God, that we as, as, as families and as a church would not lose sight of the true meaning of why we celebrate Christmas as Christians, Lord that we would constantly remember you and just be reminded of your light and your word and the life that you offer. And, you know, and though our flesh may fail, God, you have given us eternity with you, true, ultimate life, Lord, that is found in faith in you. And we just give this day to you. We give our lives to you, Lord. I just ask that we'd use this holiday time as an opportunity to perhaps speak to family members and friends who do not know you and just be a light unto them, a reflection of your light, Lord. And we just give this day to you. In your name we pray. Amen.